Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. This podcast is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org and analytics director at Internews Ukraine. Today we will analyze how Russia is using disinformation, malinformation and propaganda to support its actions against Ukraine and the West. My guest is Olga Tokaryuk, Ukrainian independent journalist, disinformation researcher, non-resident fellow for CPEI, Center for European Policy Analysis. Olga, good afternoon. Thanks so much for joining this podcast. Good afternoon, Volodymyr. Thank you for having me. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the current situation, about the geopolitical political situation, but also about information issues, because information is a, also one of the front lines of this uh, of this war that Ukraine is experiencing with Russia. How would you describe the current situation? We have seen the military, Russian military buildup. Ukraine is living in a very nervous situation, expecting possible invasion. There were talks between Russia and United States, NATO, OSCE, but it seems that they didn't bring much of the result. What do you think of the general situation? Well, you know, like being in Ukraine, in Kyiv, uh, uh, I can say that the general like, uh, mood in the public and the anxiety in the public has been increasing over the uh, recent weeks. If uh, still about a month ago, uh, most Ukrainians, they just dismissed the possibility of a new Russian invasion as Putin's bluff. Now uh, there is more uh, awareness that actually the threat is real, that there might be a new uh, Russian attack on Ukraine. We don't know in which form, on which front, and it's very possible that it won't be, uh, a, you know, like a direct uh, uh, invasion just on one front, that most probably it will uh, be a hybrid attack uh, involving cyber attacks that already happened last week on some of Ukrainian government websites. Uh, there also is a threat that uh, uh, an invasion of Ukraine could be launched from the territory of uh, Russian satellite states, such as Belarus, because Russian troops have been uh, brought to, to Belarus in the recent days. And there are increasingly uh, threatening rhetoric coming from the Belarusian president, dictator Alexander Lukashenko. So, uh, of course, Ukrainians are uh, worried about that. And there is a... a, a the conversations I hear, you know, and the conversations I also have with my friends, uh, they are in the recent days centered on how should we prepare, how should we react if something happens, what this scenario of a new Russian aggression might be. Uh, so the mood is quite tense here in Kiev. At the same time, well, uh, it's good that the negotiations, although they failed last week, they seem to continue with the, uh, the visit of the U.S. Secretary of State to Kiev and Berlin and also the upcoming talks in Geneva between uh, Antony Blinken and Sergei Lavrov on Friday. So uh, let's hope there will be a diplomatic uh, solution of this crisis. But uh, so far, it's really unlikely that Russia is uh, willing to de-escalate the situation. Also, uh, if we look uh, not just at Russian military buildup, that continues, but uh, to an increasingly harsh rhetoric of its officials and of its media and uh, Russian agents uh, spreading disinformation or suspected Russian agents spreading disinformation. Coming back to these negotiations, I have an impression that, uh, well, and Russians are uh, saying about it all the time, that they have nowhere to retreat. And Putin said it in, in late January that, well, they're issuing these uh, proposals 
the West rejects them. And then uh, uh, the question is, how would Russia uh, behave itself if it perceived the situation as nowhere to retreat? What do you think of it? Yeah, well, uh, Putin himself said in late December that if Russian security concerns, they call them, are not met and are do not uh, receive a reaction they expect from the West, then Russia will retort to the so-called uh, military technical means. And this is a the uh, double speak implying that uh, probably Russia will be launching another uh, military attack on Ukraine. Uh, so it looks like Russia is increasingly um, putting himself it, itself into a corner uh, by escalating constantly its rhetoric and by continuing its military buildup at Ukraine's borders. So it really looks very worrying, the situation. Uh, but it's also interesting that um, people who are monitoring uh, Russian state TV and like Russian media, they are saying that actually the, the Russian state TV, the one that addresses Russian public, the one intended for internal audience, uh, that its rhetoric doesn't really match uh, um, in its aggressivity uh, the levels of 2014 so that there is no uh, huge anti-Ukrainian hysteria on Russian TV yet. So some observers take it as a positive sign that maybe Russia would still be uh, willing to take a step back because at least it's not uh, conducting a massive anti-Ukrainian campaign, uh, bigger than it, than it did before, at least uh, among its internal population. Well, I would disagree with these experts because what I see from Russian state TV is that uh, the rhetoric is quite aggressive and we have seen one of the presenters on RT, Russia Today, the former Russia Today, who was calling Ukrainians tvari, this is a quote, which we can uh, translate as animals, but it's even a harsher word than animals. And uh, there is this rhetoric that, you know, aggressive Ukrainians want to attack and we will we will soon show them, uh, you know, who is the boss. So uh, at the same time, I see, and, and let's turn right now to kind of the, the, the questions of information and disinformation or propaganda, information operations. Uh, you monitor it very closely. I see kind of... A, mm, uh, divide in the Russian heads, in, in people like Solovyov or others, for example, they are saying that Ukrainians are Nazis, fascists, but at the same time they are saying that Ukrainians are the same people with Russians and echoing the famous or notorious article by Putin. And uh, they saying at the same at the same time that Russia can, you know, punish Ukrainians, but also they are saying that the war between Ukraine and Russia will be a tragedy. So how you explain this this double vision? Yeah, well, it's very difficult to explain. You know, I'm certainly not a specialist on what Russian propagandists have the, in, in their heads and what kind of directions uh, they receive from the Kremlin, and they most uh, certainly receive these directions. But yeah, I agree that there is a, this uh, double attitude towards Ukraine and Ukrainians. So on the one hand, as you said, uh, they are constantly trying to portray all Ukrainians as the Nazis and criminals, but at the same time saying that they are a brotherly nation and the same 
same people uh, as Russians. And actually, uh, there were uh, tweets of uh, the Russian foreign ministry in recent days that were also highlighting this, you know, double attitude because on the one hand uh, they were tweeting that uh, okay there is an anniversary of the Periaslav accords which uh, mark the the anniversary of uh, unification of Russia and Ukraine and at the same time everybody remembers that Putin said repeatedly and in that infamous article that you quoted uh, that uh, Ukraine is an artificial construct created by Lenin so okay did Ukraine exist in the 17th century or was it created by Lenin in early 20th century. So again, you know, this uh, doublespeak by Russia, and of course we have to take all these statements with not just a grain of salt, but I would say with a bag of salt, because so much lies and so much uh, disinformation is behind them. Uh, you mentioned Twitter. There is lots, much of activity of uh, Russian activity on Twitter, right? There are we, We know that there are Russian troll armies everywhere in the world. So do you do you see any pattern of activity right now? Yeah, that's a very interesting question and I would really like to discuss it further because uh, I, as a disinformation researcher, was working on, and I'm still working on a very interesting project with a, a company called Mythos Labs. So with the help of artificial intelligence and uh, the algorithm this company developed, we are uh, researching the activity of uh, uh, pro-Russian disinformation accounts on Twitter. And we started doing that in November last year and we've been doing it for two months and what we see that the activity of this uh, Russian disinformation accounts and these are seemingly inauthentic accounts this is uh, being uh, determined by the algorithm on how they behave and the algorithm decides they are inauthentic or suspicious. So the activity of these accounts it increased by uh, more than 3,000 percent and I repeat it 3,000 percent in November and December uh, last year compared to the rest of 2021. So it is a huge spike in activity of these accounts that are spreading anti-Ukrainian narratives very similar of the Kremlin uh, uh, statements that are coming out from the official uh, Kremlin but also like other uh, Russian state media. These accounts usually amplify like other accounts which uh, may be legitimate or they may be Russian state media or they may be other inauthentic accounts or suspicious accounts but with a wider following and it's very interesting that the trends show also that while in November many of these accounts were tweeting in Russian uh, in December they shifted uh, and there were other accounts and they were tweeting mostly in English uh, what does it mean? It means that the activity of this uh, pro-Russian disinformation spreaders on Twitter is now increasingly focused on the Western audience, on an English speaking audience with the goal to uh, dissuade the West from supporting Ukraine and uh, with the goal to undermine uh, Western uh, support for Ukraine this is especially true for the US because many of these accounts amplify messaging uh, such as uh, the U.S. uh, shouldn't intervene in the conflict between uh, Russia and Ukraine. The U.S. should focus uh, on the uh, U.S.-Mexico border instead of the situation on a a Russian-Ukrainian border. uh, There are also conflicting narratives. Uh, On the one hand, uh, these accounts 
accused President Biden of uh, um, sacrificing Ukraine and basically giving it up to Russia. And on the other hand, these accounts also say that, well, Biden is prioritizing Ukraine over the U.S. interests. So it's very interesting, you know, to uh, follow this kind of narratives, how they change. Uh, and we'll continue this monitoring uh, in the in the coming months. Uh, so I invite like everyone interested to uh, go to mythoslabs.com to check these reports. And uh, if it's possible, we'll also post the links uh, to these reports uh, under this podcast, Volodya. Yeah, sure. Uh, if, if we ask, for example, a question, what is the time patterns? For example, can we say that they started the, the 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 increase of the activity started at a certain moment. For example, we are talking about the escalation, the military build up from November. Uh, does it start earlier than that or later than that? What what can you say? Yeah, that's a very another very good question. In fact, what we see that the activity of these accounts it increased a few weeks earlier than the first news of military buildup came. So this might indicate that the, the first uh, uh, step that precedes the military escalation is the uh, escalation of disinformation efforts. So first, uh, this uh, activity, uh, the activity of um, social media accounts pushing for Russian disinformation uh, is increasing, and it can be seen as an indicator that they might be following a, a military escalation. Right. How do you identify these accounts? For example, a, a typical Twitter user sees a, a kind of a post or retweet or a comment. How she or he uh, will or can identify, okay, this account is suspicious. This account can, can be just an information or disinformation soldier in, a, in a, bigger, a bigger army of Russian or any other a disinformation, um, disinformation army. Well, so in this research, we are using a special algorithm called MyDAC. This is a tool that was developed by Mythos Labs, and unfortunately, it is not in the public domain, so it cannot be accessed by any user. But uh, there are uh, other online tools and websites uh, that uh, help uh, just like an ordinary person uh, to check uh, the authenticity of this or the other Twitter account and to check the probability uh, that this or that account can be a bot or an inauthentic one. So I would name uh, one such tool. It's called TruthNest. Truth, uh, Truth Nest. Uh, just Google it, and uh, uh, there you just have to in, uh, insert a handle of uh, of the account, and the, the the website will analyze what is the probability that this is a bot. It it does it based on different indicators, such as uh, the activity of uh, uh, the daily activity. When is this account uh, uh, tweeting? So, for example, uh, it's a very high probability that the account is inauthentic or that is uh, like automated account if it's tweeting at all times of the day if it doesn't have like a rest during the night and uh, there are also other criteria uh, there is a variety of them so in the end it gives uh, a very like high or low probability like it gives you a score based uh, on like it's a percentage from 0 to 100% of uh, whether uh, this or that account is uh, is a bot or not so i Again, like the, the name of the tool is Truth Nest. Just uh, uh, browse, like look for it, uh, 
online and uh, feel free to use it. It's it's free of charge. You just have to have a, a Twitter account to log in with your Twitter account to be able to access it. Another another tool is called Botometer. Uh, we use for uh, at Ukraine World a lot. Botometer. You can also just uh, you know insert the handle. Yeah, and, and, I know that see. tool. Yeah. And uh, well, it also should be used cautiously because it's an algorithm, and uh, uh, sometimes it is wrong. Because it yeah, it's very good to cross-check like several yeah. tools to yeah, not sure. use just one tool, but like to compare it with the results that the other tools give you. But it's interesting. We had the research, for example, on troll armies around uh, pro-Russian actors in Ukraine, like Mr. Medvedchuk and uh, those troll armies that are helping him. Uh, so what we discovered is that uh, first uh, you can you can easily on Twitter you can easily identify the network because you, Twitter helps you to uh, with the with the advice. Well, this account is related to that account, etc. We see a certain pattern, for example, with. Uh, with pictures, the user pictures that these accounts are using. For example, in our research, we, we understood that lots of lots of them have pictures of uh, cats, and we called our research uh, Putin's kittens. Uh, but uh, another interesting thing is that they are involved mostly into the Russian and pro-Kremlin discourse, and that, that's it. That's an interesting thing. So they are not; they were not Ukrainian troll armies. They were. Russian troll armies that were in the in the discourse of Russian internal politics, and when it is needed, they just shift to Ukrainian uh, politics. For example, to to the topic of Ukrainian political agenda. That's an interesting thing. For example, if we take such people as uh, bloggers like Shari, for example, or some others, they're very active in the Russian internal discourse. They are, for example, were very anti Navalny, uh, you know, mocking the Navalny, etc. And you can you can sometimes match it. But let me ask, okay, Twitter is, is a very important tool, but uh, at the same time, it is one of the most transparent tools. If we talk about Ukraine, we see some other very non-transparent tools like messengers, like Viber, or even Telegram. And we, we see lots of these anonymous Telegram channels. Uh, we don't know who is behind them. Uh, the ordinary, ordinary viewer, ordinary consumer... Do you think this is a threat? Do you think that Russians are using this uh, this network of Telegram channels? Yeah, well, absolutely. There were uh, several studies um, done on uh, how uh, disinformation is spread on Telegram, and one particular aspect was anti-vaccine disinformation, uh, because anti-vaccine sentiment is pretty strong in Ukraine. And there was a, a, a study, and it was also confirmed by some Ukrainian official uh, officials and the Ukrainian government that actually uh, there exists a network of uh, Telegram channels, anonymous Telegram channels that are constantly pushing anti-vaccine disinformation and these uh, networks are administered from Russia. So it's not only uh, the disinformation uh, on the topic of the military movements or, uh, you know, talking about the war, but it, it affects like all spheres of life in, in, in Ukraine. So the, it, it, it tries to undermine Ukraine from various points of view, like the um, health of Ukrainians and the healthcare system. Also, it tries to undermine trust in the Ukrainian authorities on behalf of the society. It tries to uh, 
saw divisions within the Ukrainian society. Uh, this is if we are talking about disinformation directed at Ukrainian audience. And if we are talking at disinf- about disinformation, uh, Russian-linked disinformation that is uh, targeting uh, international audiences, this is uh, uh, the, the main narratives there are, uh, as you previously said, trying to portray Ukraine as a country full of Nazis, as a country that doesn't deserve uh, uh, international Western support, as a country that is a failed state, that is incapable of uh, uh, being... Uh, like a modern, uh, economically uh, developed, uh, prosperous country. Uh, So a whole set of narratives, very different depending on their target audience and quite sophisticated. Also, like in in this latest research we've done on Twitter, what we uh, noticed, and this is... uh, a trend, a recent trend, although it's a, not a new one, it's been used by Russian disinformation actors before, it's just that we compared our findings for November and December, and we didn't find that in November, but in December we did find this. So uh, it is about uh, that this uh, inauthentic uh, accounts on Twitter that uh, share Russian disinformation, they are also amplifying now legitimate accounts, legitimate accounts that have a lot of following. And these legitimate accounts are uh, quite often some Western journalists, but uh, let's say with a dubious reputation uh, who are uh, spreading conspiracy theories and also who are spreading pro-Russian messaging such as Glenn Greenwald or uh, there is a John Pilger, an Australian journalist, uh, so these uh, people have uh, millions of followers on Twitter. Okay, not millions, but more than one million. And, you know, uh, and these inauthentic accounts amplify and give uh, them more prominence and make uh, these claims seem more legitimate because, well, they are coming from a person who, is, who has a huge following, uh, so it should be true at least for those who are not aware of how disinformation and its amplification works. So it's uh, it's important, I think, uh, I don't know if you agree with me, that this disinformation, what we call disinformation, is actually a very sophisticated uh, thing. Uh, Absolutely, I agree with that. We, we cannot say that this is just fake news. Uh, mo- most often it's, it's something based up upon the real feeling of the people, real situation, and... Uh, uh, for example, if, if they take an event, a fact in Ukrainian politics or society, uh, for example, if if, we, if they point at deficiencies of uh, actions by Ukrainian authorities, but they just aggravate it. They 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 show the picture as very gloomy. They they say that oh, well, the bad things are actually much much worse than you even think of them. And probably that's so they, they find these, you know, points, weak points in each society, and they try to go to this point uh, and and make it like it like a trauma, you know, they, they're finding these traumas. For example, uh, if we talk about these Telegram channels, it was interesting how much they were criticizing Poroshenko in 2019 and and saying, well, that's the worst Ukrainian president ever. Now they're saying the same thing about Zelensky. And um, and and his actions. What do you think? Would you agree with me? 
Yes, yes, I I agree with you that uh, the disinformation actors they are uh, working on several levels because yeah, on the one hand there are these inauthentic social media accounts which, well, with the naked eye you could say that they are suspicious because, for example, like their Twitter handle consists of like numbers and letters. That's like the first indication that it might be an inauthentic account, and then like there are tools that you can analyze them with and. Uh, okay, be more or less sure that uh, these are the accounts, uh, they are inauthentic and they might be part of a troll army. But then, of course, there is an issue that this information is uh, often coming from uh, state officials, like especially Russian state officials, and then it is uh, amplified and it is reported by major media because, well, major media have to cover what President Putin has to say or what uh, Sergei Lavrov has to say. Uh, So that's another part of the problem. And then there is also uh, yet another part of the problem that unfortunately there are some countries uh, in the European Union, for example, which uh, are not immune to Russian disinformation where uh, really a little awareness uh, exists of how it works, uh, which have strong ties to Russia and where we can even see the Russian disinformation amplified on major uh, uh, media and public broadcasters. So uh, that's, I think, like a, a very serious problem because, okay, if, if it's coming from some not very popular uh, inauthentic accounts on social media or suspicious accounts or okay, well, maybe a little bit more popular, but you know they have an agenda, for example, that they've been uh, distributing pro-Russian uh, views for a long time, then okay, you, you kind of uh, understand that this is disinformation. But if it is coming from uh, respected media, if it is coming from public broadcasters, uh, then it is much more dangerous because people have, uh, uh, well, they trust uh, th- this uh, this media and they have no way to doubt what they are saying because, well, if you doubt the public broadcasters, then what you are left with. So this, I think, is the most uh, dangerous element of how this information works, like uh, subjugating uh, mainstream media, subjugating public broadcasters in the Western countries. That would be my next question. Uh, you recently pointed out that one of the such reports by Italian TV Rai Uno from uh, Occupy Donbass, and you pointed at the kind of a very strange things that happened in this report. What do you mean? Yeah, so uh, I was actually having in mind this case when I was talking about how public broadcasters uh, push Russian disinformation. Uh, So, yeah, the Italian public uh, broadcaster uh, TV uh, channel Rai Uno has been reporting, has been broadcasting the reports from the occupied Donbass for more than a week now. And as far as I know, there have been at least five reports from uh, Donetsk and Luhansk regions like the, that are held currently by uh, militants supported by Russia. And in these reports, uh, uh, a lot, a lot of uh, uh, Russian disinformation narratives were found, both voiced by the reporter himself, uh, who is a former correspondent in Moscow for Rai Uno. His name is Alessandro Cassieri. Uh, and also, uh, these narratives were um, to, were said, were voiced by the people he interviewed. Uh, 
uh, and there are also questions to the about the correctness of uh, these quotes because at least in one case uh, uh, the, the the quote of a woman on the streets of Donetsk uh, in Russian you can hear it in the report that in Russian it, she says one thing but in Italian what is translated is a completely different thing so there there are also questions on how accurate these quotes were at least part of them so what's the problem with these reports uh, well um, first of of all, like he starts, and I would just like discuss one report uh, that was uh, aired on uh, Friday, January 14 at uh, Rai Uno in their weekly program, and it was uh, eight for an uh, eight and a half minutes long. So a very long, comprehensive report uh, from the occupied territories of Ukraine. So it opens with uh, already a mistake, like a factual mistake, when the journalist says that uh, Donbass region is called like that because it is located in the basin of a river Don, while river Don is in Russia. And in fact, this the river is Donetsk. And that's why it's called like Donbass because it's Siversky Donetsk. It's not Don. So like a first uh, mistake is a factual mistake, and there are also other factual mistakes, such as saying that Donbass was uh, uh, producing eighty percent of Ukraine's GDP before the war, which is very far from truth, and that it was literally uh, feeding all of Ukraine. Then the reporter says that now it survives thanks to help of, and I quote, Great Mother Russia. And here I would question the choice of words, but okay, that's a, a journalist's decision. Uh, but there are much worse things in this report, and uh, they are basically uh, in that that uh, the reporter uh, says that, well, the civil war uh, uh, began in Ukraine after Maidan revolution, while it is clear that it, it's not a civil war, but the Russian attack and Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, he gives the floor to uh, uh, Russian, pro-Russian soldiers in the trenches and the occupied Donbass uh, who say that, uh, like in the Second World War, they are fighting against the fascist aggressor. And the journalist doesn't uh, counter these words and doesn't put them into question. Also, uh, who is interviewed in this report is uh, uh, the so-called president of Donetsk People's Republic, Denis Pushilin. And again, the reporter gives him the floor without like any critical attitude on his behalf and without questioning his words. So he permits, like first he calls uh, Pushilin president of Donetsk People Republic, People's Republic without so-called, so without self-proclaimed. So as if uh, this was some legitimate entity and he was like a legitimate president of this entity. And uh, the reporter also doesn't mention that uh, Denis Pushilin is a member of Yedina Rasia, Putin's party, and that he voted at the elections uh, to state uh, Duma last year. So he, he fails to mention these things, and instead he gives the floor to Pushilin to claim that Russia has no involvement in Donbass, that uh, Russian military is not present there, that Russia only helped uh, by providing humanitarian aid. And also the, uh, the Pushilin says that Russia was providing passports to the residents of uh, occupied Donetsk and Luhansk regions because they were stateless persons, which is another lie. These people were citizens of Ukraine and they were not stateless. So this is a, another lie which goes uncountered by, by the reporter. So I could go on and on. There are like other uh, statements that Pushilin makes uh, uh, denying uh, Russian involvement in the um, 
in taking down the MH17 flight, uh, repeating Kremlin's uh, statements that uh, uh, Russia didn't get access to the trial, that he didn't get access to the investigation. Uh, he also accuses uh, the US and NATO of supplying weapons to Ukraine. So uh, a lot of the claims, false claims, uh, which a reporter doesn't react to in any way, and also a lot of uh, reporters' uh, own words, for example, blaming Ukrainian soldiers for killing civilians, for killing two, 200 children in one of Donetsk uh, districts. Uh, he says that Ukrainian snipers were shooting at women who were planting flowers. Uh, which, you know, like a typical tactic of uh, disinformation playing on people's emotions and uh, uh, talking about some like atrocious things without providing any evidence. Uh, so uh, uh, this is a really outrageous, actually, full of uh, propaganda and information report. Uh, and as I said, it's just one out of at least five that were broadcast from Donetsk and Luhansk by uh, Rayuno crew. Uh, with the reporter Alessandro Cassieri, who was a reporter in Moscow and now is in bureau in Paris. And uh, Ukrainian embassy in Italy, it uh, sent a letter of uh, protest to the uh, editor-in-chief of uh, Rai Uno, Monica Maggioni. Uh, it said that, uh, well, the, this reporting was repeating cliches of Russian propaganda and it was one-sided and, unbi- and biased. And also uh, what is interesting that Ukrainian embassy points out in this letter uh, uh, it reminds about the um, actually that under Ukrainian law it is uh, prohibited to enter the occupied territories uh, on not via checkpoints of the uh, control that are controlled by the Ukrainian government. So it indirectly implies that also the reporters got to the occupied territories from Russia and not from Ukraine. Unfortunately, there has been no reaction to this letter as we speak, although there has been quite some outrage on social media, also by Italian citizens who uh, agreed with the assessment that this report was very inaccurate and full of disinformation and who said that uh, they didn't want, like that they, they were actually very angry that uh, their taxpayers' money uh, are funding this kind of uh, reporting because, well, this is on public broadcaster and public bro- broadcaster is supported by the money of taxpayers. Indeed, this is a very strange case that after all the years of the Russian aggression, we still have to talk about such things. Of course, we can, you know, we have we can have a balanced opinion, and we can talk about we can criticize the Ukrainian actions. There are lots of problems in Ukraine in the way how it approaches the war, how it approaches the occupied territories. But indeed, giving a very one-sided thing and you know denying Russian involvement by a person who is himself, like Mr. Poshirin, a Russian citizen, and uh, voting for state Duma elections is is a very, very strange thing to say the least. You mentioned these passports, the Russian passports, and uh, we increasingly see that, uh, you know, these occupied territories are increasingly integrated into Russia politically, economically. Do you think that Minsk agreements, which presume that those territories should uh, come back to Ukraine via, for example, local elections, do you think that still makes sense, given the fact that many people living there are already voting not for Ukrainian elections, but for Russian elections? That's a difficult question. You know, I don't have an answer to that. But uh, it's true that the situation on the occupied Donbass has changed 
since 2014 and uh, uh, about a million uh, Russian passports were given uh, to the residents of uh, the occupied Donetsk and Luhansk regions and uh, uh, some of this uh, new Russian citizens, they were voting at Russian elections. In la last year, they were bused uh, to uh, uh, Rostov region of Russia, or they were voting online. Um, so that's a difficult question. What is happening is basically uh, not yet the euro, but de facto annexation of the occupied Donbass by Russia. Um, you know, it's also difficult to answer that question because we are now in the situation when we are like awaiting what would be Putin's next moves uh, in relation to Ukraine, whether, and it is one of scenarios that are currently being discussed, that whether he would attempt to like the Euro annex Donbass and like they occupied Donbass and like cut it off like definitely from the Ukrainian territory or like would he try to widen the territory under Russian control in Donbass or elsewhere in Ukraine uh, so I, I, I really think like we should it, it's early to answer that question we should wait and see how the situation develops but I agree with you that one of the scenarios could be that Russian troops actually who are stationed on the border enter publicly, openly, the occupied territories put, uh, for example, the so-called peacekeepers, Russian peacekeepers on the on the demarcation line uh, and Minsk agreements, because Minsk agreements have no, no sense in this situation. And that can be one of the one of the scenarios, but of course there can be much worse scenarios, uh, meaning that Ukraine is encircled, and we have seen uh, reports. We know that, for example, of, of course in Ukraine itself, but we have seen also the, the reports in the Western media showing how Ukraine is encircled from the south, from, from Crimea, from the east, and from the north, from the Russian territories, but also ev eventually from the Belarusian territory. Yeah, I and also from the southwest, southwest and Transnistria, don't forget that. Yeah, exactly. So this is just to give an idea that Ukraine is really living in a, in a very, very anxious mood right now. And many people are living in an in a, in a, in a unclarity, of course, what to expect, what to expect this year. Should we expect a, a full-fledged war or some other, maybe not not that dramatic, but still very very painful uh, consequences for Ukraine. We will end on this. Uh, thank you so much, Olga. Uh, we had uh, Olga Tokaruk, uh, independent journalist, Ukrainian independent journalist, disinformation researcher and non-resident fellow for SIPA, Center for Euro European Policy Analysis. Thanks so much for your thoughts and your ideas. Thank you so much, Volodymyr, and thanks to all our listeners. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. This podcast is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast at SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, follow ukraineworld.org on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to our website at ukraineworld.org. And stay with us.